This evening's talk is on compassion. And I'd like to begin with a quote from the American author and photographer Eudora Welty. My continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. There's an image in uh, Tibetan Buddhism that represents the awakened energy of unconditional boundless compassion. It's an image of a bodhisattva uh, that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes. The thousand eyes are that each uh, in each uh, hand is painted an eye in the palm of the hand, in the hands that are reaching out. So a thousand eyes to see all of the suffering in the world and a thousand arms reaching out to help. A number of years ago now, I uh, attended a retreat with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and there were about 400 adults there and also 30 children. The children were off each day having their own retreat, but each morning they would come in uh, to do a kind of show and tell uh, for all of us adults before our retreat day began. And each morning they would stand up in front of us uh, and in various ways uh, share with us what they had been doing and learning during the previous day. So one morning all 30 children came into the meditation hall and they stood in a long line facing the 400 adults. And then each child stretched out uh, both of their arms uh, with their hands wide open and facing us uh, 400 adults. And in the palm of each child's hand was painted an eye. And then one little boy walked up onto the platform where Tignat Han was sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Tignat Han's hands. And this was the whole of their presentation that morning. No words, just that. And it was very uh, inspiring, very touching, and beautiful. So, compassion, karuna in Pali. What is it experientially? About 45 years ago, early one June morning, I heard the wake-up stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons. And holding him that morning with uh, quite a sweet tenderness between us, as he lay open-eyed and relaxed and quite contented in my arms, and my eyes looking very deeply into his face with a kind of wonderment and a curiosity. And then I suddenly felt my heart trembling, quivering, the vibration permeating my chest and heart center, and then moving through the whole body and mind. 
a feeling of connection, an intimacy, an intimacy with him and with life as a force, so to say. Immediately interwoven with these moments was a deep sense that this tiny being would experience many difficult things in his life. Difficult situations and many painful bodily and mental experiences, difficult, painful uh, bodily and mental experiences within himself. And a, a wave of the breadth of the suffering in life literally quivered through me in the midst of those moments of sweetness and beauty. And some tears came that morning in those moments, but not the aching tears of sadness that come with feelings of attachment. That morning the tears were more like the juice of compassion. That, yes, this is how it is for all of us and for him as well. And that morning's experience has returned many, many times. And in many ways, both as a teaching and as a practice for me, within the enormous gratitude of living life immersed in the Dhamma and what that brings. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering. Ours or that of another being. Compassion is the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching. It's one of the two wings, we could say, with which we learn to fly free. The wing of wisdom, the of deeply understanding the not-self nature of all things, and the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings that comes through a deep understanding, a deep knowing of dukkha, the cycle of unsatisfactoriness that runs through most of our lives, knowing its cause and knowing the way to its end. Because meditation practice has the power to clear away, to purify mental obscurations, the states of mind that constrict, that bind the heart, that bind the mind, practice makes us much more keenly aware and more sensitive of the suffering in this world. So how can we bring this deepening sensitivity, our new awareness, so to say, of dukkha into our practice, into this path of liberation. Our practice is grounded in mindfulness and investigation. Mindfulness and the clear discrimination of states of body, states of mind. Connecting with what arises and seeing it clearly. It also must be grounded in the non-judgmental acceptance that the heart of metta brings. A mind, 
heart steeped in metta is what allows the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this important capacity along the way in our training of the mind, of the heart, is intimately involved with our growing capacity to compassionately meet and clearly see the difficult, to compassionately and wisely understand the the suffering that shows up in life. Compassion is a very tender, open state. And at the same time, it's a place within us of great strength. Tenderness, openness, and strength. The capacity to stay present in relationship to whatever's happening within our own body-mind continuum. And in relationship to what's going on around us. And not feel overwhelmed by any of it. And so we gently practice maintaining our awareness of suffering. Most of us are pretty strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, sweep dis-ease under the rug, hide it away in the metaphoric closet or attic. Or we hide ourself away by shutting off or maybe going to sleep or distracting ourselves in various ways. Or possibly through ignoring or trivializing suffering so that we don't see or feel uh, the pain of others, our own pain or the pain of others in the world. Our conditioned habits of avoidance and distraction are usually based in fear. The fear that if we really recognize, connect with, and open to the pain, it will touch too deeply and cause us even more discomfort, more anguish, and maybe even unbearable pain. The aim of karuna practice, compassion practice, is to move us towards our developing capacity for heartful, unconditional acceptance to turn the mind the heart specifically towards suffering in relationship to ourselves and to others and then with understanding and courage open open to and move towards the alleviation of suffering through the purification of the mind that practice affords us Over time, we learn to do this without getting overwhelmed by the suffering, but rather to begin to feel and know an unobstructed strength of understanding, care, and courage, which is what gives us the necessary and wholesome energy to act. In cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing mindful awareness and investigation, a whole new realm of choices, insights, and responses become available to us. We meet, we accept what is, which is the essence of mindfulness, 
based in metta. And then in whatever ways might be appropriate, we're able to help ourselves or another being without any aspect of aversion creating a barrier. True compassion or boundless compassion, as it's often called, is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings, ourself included, and in our mind not make others or ourself in any way more important than each other. Compassion is neither strained nor is it reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform fear, the anger, the resentment, disappointment, grief, or expectation that might be present in relationship to another or in relationship to our own bodily and mental experiences. With the development and the blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating an immeasurable impartiality which in other, in other words uh, could be described as a pureless and fearless openness without territorial limitation. Compassion has the power to melt, to dissolve the separation between self and other, to dissolve the separation in the direct experience of our body, heart and mind in an open-hearted and yet impersonal, non-identified way. It's our clinging to the idea of self, our deeply habituated thought of a separate, solid, static self that perpetuates this painful separation, or as it's sometimes called, this painful experience of duality. Compassion has the power to dissolve or counteract the uneasiness, the discomfort, the contraction, or the withdrawal in the face of others or in the face of our own pain and suffering, so that we're honestly and truly present with them and with ourselves. How different this is from the reactive patterns of anger, fear, resentment, judgment, unhealthy grief, jealousy, or greed. I think often uh, we think of mental uh, states or emotional states as being positive or negative. As understanding deepens through our uh, practice, we begin to know that the most important and helpful and really true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the differentiation between reaction and response. Reaction or reaction is always based in the past, on past conditioned patterns that are rooted in an agenda. Patterns and agendas that are always primarily associated with I, me, or mine. So consequently uh, aren't connected and don't see and don't serve the whole reality of our present moment experience. 
reaction or reaction always supports and recreates some aspect of our particular karmic predicament. It reifies our habitual thoughts, actions, and self-identification as this is who I am, this is who you are. Compassion, on the other hand, is a response, not a reaction. There's a story about uh, Zen master Ryokan whose brother invited him to visit his house and speak to his uh, delinquent son. And, of course, Ryokan went. But he didn't say any words at all of admonishment to the boy. He stayed overnight, and uh, the next morning as he was preparing to leave early, his... uh, his wayward son, or nephew, excuse me, his wayward nephew was sitting on the ground helping Ryokan lace up his uh, straw sandals. And the boy felt uh, a drop of warm water touch his hand. And he looked up and he saw that his uncle Ryokan was looking at him with his eyes full of tears. And Ryokan returned home And the nephew, soon after uh, this visit, changed for the better. Compassion training, the practice and the unfolding of karuna, it's challenging. It's often difficult. It means that we uh, take to heart the Buddha's words uh, that I mentioned and that I'm sure you've heard Many times, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And as uh, we all know, uh, the Buddha wasn't about to go on to tell us uh, the best way to suffer. We're very well practiced in this. Uh, Nor was he recommending suffering. Um, He was, though, pointing out that unsatisfactoriness, confusion, anguish are all intrinsic to our human condition or more accurately these states of mind are intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life what he was doing was pointing out the truth of its its existence and that looking directly deeply and honestly at the reality of suffering in our lives is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it which in turn leads to the transformation and relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish as I mentioned uh, two evenings ago everything in life including what we think of as our self, all of our experiences of body and mind, are like a rainbow, merely a changing set of conditions that are totally interrelated, totally contingent, and empty in and of themselves. And as I said, it's quite obvious with rainbows, as you know, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, so to say. 
the suffering of grasping on, of holding tight to some appearing thing and then solidifying it and identifying it as mine, as me, as who I think I am, be it a material objects or ideas, opinions, beliefs, a memory, an emotional state, a bodily experience, thinking that any of these things in, are in any way permanent, in any way unchanging, and identifying any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably and eventually bring confusion and some degree of anguish. And as both Saidao and I have spoken about trying to control or trying to grasp on to events or to any moments of this constantly changing life with the nature of it all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, ungraspable, will inevitably bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. I found it amazing and illuminating when I began to see that as I practiced, the particular objects that come into awareness don't really change much. Same objects. Basically, we keep attending to the same body-mind objects over and over again. It's how we see them and our relationship to them that changes. And so we find out something kind of astonishing and fortunate about suffering. That it itself is a conditional, totally contingent contingent aspect of life. It's not absolute. As we begin to see clearly, and at least occasionally, a step aside as we continue to climb the mountain of compassion and wisdom, letting the heavy rock that we've been carrying for so long, uh, the uh, heavy rock of our unskillful, cherished habits and identities, let this rock hurtle to the bottom. We're less and less often habitually, blindly, caught and trapped in old patterns of of a suffering relationship to life. The capacities of kindness, compassion, mindful awareness and wisdom begin to take root. Our mind and our heart opens and we're truly beginning to awaken. I wanted to share a a portion of a letter that I received from um, a dear friend. And these are her words. Just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me for the past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this. Resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave but something holding me back from actually telling her that. 
I recently realized it's compassion. Compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on. Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity. I realize that if I let all my conflicting feelings and issues take over, I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding, and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go of limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those feelings, but feel very clear about my course of action. Life can be so rich and challenging in all its connections to friends, parents, and children. So where is the heart's capacity for compassion and our inclination to cultivate compassion come from? The seeds of compassion within each of us have been planted many times. Every time we've experienced another being who was willing to be with us when we were in pain. Every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with. When we've been sick or hurting physically or when we've been in some emotional pain. The seeds of compassion were sown during these times. In any moment of the purity of a compassionate connection, relationship is transformed by cutting through the me-you, the subject-object dualism. Karuna, compassion, is a unifying energy. The giver and the receiver are joined, not separate, in any moment of pure presence. These moments hold and carry a particular energy of the heart, of the mind, the particular energy of compassion, and plant the seed of this energy in the receiver. And for most of this, this happens many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And of course, we in turn plant many seeds. Every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally, a seed of compassion is planted. And the seed of karuna within our own heart is watered and fertilized and grows. Every time we wholesomely respond rather than react, both internally and outwardly, to a difficult or painful set of circumstances, a seed of compassion is planted and the seeds of karuna in our own heart grow. And sometimes the learning curve can be quite steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourself asks us to step out of what might be, uh, step into, excuse me, what might be unknown territory and into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. And this can take us to the very core of our being, to the very core of our subtle, self-centered agenda. The agenda that props up the veil of subtle or maybe not so subtle separation that we've been living behind maybe forever. 
These learning curves that come our way every once in a while hold the amazing possibility for us to recognize and let go of the habitual knots that bind us, which in turn offers us the truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourself as well. Looking at it this way, the interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting a seed for the arising of a clear and true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission. It's a kind of circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission. We give the transmission to others and also again to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on it goes, the spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and I think for many people, an amazing and inspiring uh, contemporary embodiment and transmitter of compassion has been uh, Mother Teresa. In a video uh, about her life and about her work, there's a short scene where she stops beside the bed of a man that has just been brought in, uh, in from the street and who's extremely emaciated and sick. And she gets down very close to him, right next to his bed, and looking directly into his eyes, and just simply lays her hand over his heart. And he looks very directly back at her. And for those moments, those few moments, the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes completely into light and love. A few moments of a gentle and very powerful transmission. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and face whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's, says, I can't stand this. I can't be near it. I can't bear this feeling. And it's very important when this comes up in the mind, comes up in the heart, to connect to the aversion with mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental connection and acceptance of metta. Meeting the reactive state of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising with open-hearted mindfulness. This is the attention that connects this is how it is right now. This is fear. This is anger. This is what's happening in this moment. And this is how it is. It's very important to recognize our limits at any given point without self-judgment. However they might show up in the process of the cultivation of compassion. 
Karuna is never developed through force. It's appropriate and natural to back off from painful experience at times in our life, in our practice. Kindness, gentleness with ourself is an important and necessary aspect of our practice. This itself is karuna. And it's important to stay mindful in the moving away from and the coming close to, the opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to the mental and physical or situational pain that's showing up. As it is with any object that we give mindful attention to in our practice, our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more closely and clearly. And consequently, our relationship to the object will also change. We need to learn to befriend ourselves, to come close and see how it is, see how it really is. It might be a very strong and intense energy, but it's not static, it's not solid. So we learn to come close with great intimacy, the great intimacy of our practice to see how it really is. Can we come so close, grounded in the heart connection of acceptance with a growing compassion and see the various colors of the rainbow of our experience truly in themselves and begin to see through these colors, even the strongest, most intense colors? If a very dear friend comes to you with their troubles, we usually give them our attention. We give them our care in some way. We don't usually tell them to stop feeling what they're feeling or tell them to get away from us in the middle of their suffering. Our practice teaches how to befriend ourselves, which quite naturally leads to the development and the blossoming of a connection with all beings. We come to really know that the pain in our heart or in our back or in our mind essentially isn't different from the pain in the heart or the back or the mind of any being anywhere in this world. I think for most of us, our hand quite naturally and quite spontaneously often reaches out to soothe the ache in our own foot or in our back or or maybe in our heart. And what is it then that sometimes holds us back from spontaneously responding to the suffering of another in this very same simple and natural way? Essentially this is due to a deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate self. As long as we're immersed and blindly living in and out of this fixed idea, spontaneous concern for others will probably primarily be felt 
for those who fall into the range of who we think of as mine. And there may be some degree of indifference or even maybe a more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those who are outside of this range of mine. As our heart opens and our understanding deepens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. And our heart opens and our understanding begins to mature Connection and empathy begin to blossom. As our sense of being a closed cell dissolves, it's not that I or me vanish into some bottomless hole of nothingness. Instead, we discover that we're really, truly and simply a cell, so to say, that forms part of what Stephen Batchelor calls the interdependent multicellular organism of existence itself. As wisdom blossoms, the understanding and our way of being in and with conventional reality is transformed. We come to know experientially that I, the sense of I, only exists in relationship to you. I, me, isn't eliminated. Me is transformed. There's only relationship. I, me, you, them, us, etc. have never and will never exist in isolation have never and will never exist in any solid, static, separate way. The notions of me and you, the seemingly fixed conceptual distinctions of me and you, begin to dissolve with the blossoming of the the uh, unconditional acceptance of metta, and compassion. They begin to dissolve in relationship to the ways that we go about our life, how we relate in this life. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally more and more often. We begin to understand in ourselves that the needs of I and me are no more important than of those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness, acceptance, and compassion. And in relation to this, uh, some words from 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet, as we know, it's not so easy 
this relating to others and even to ourself with the clarity of a pure, compassionate heart and mind. We have many old and seemingly new personal agendas. We have many deeply conditioned habitual patterns. I think that for many people there's uh, some confusion in relationship to the difference between pity and what can be described as an unhealthy grief and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and grief, are what is called the near enemy or what looks like, what masquerades as compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of a true open-hearted caring presence. Pity is a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a contraction away from, a withdrawal, if we look really carefully. When we pity, there's a subtle or maybe not so subtle wanting it to be different. And also maybe some feeling uh, that I'm glad it's not me that's suffering so much. Pity tinged with a little taste of arrogance. An arrogance that's maybe a cover-up for our fear and our inability at that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. The energy of unhealthy or the unwholesome component of grief is fraught with self-centeredness. It's a very self-obsessed energy and it can lead one into depression if it goes unrecognized. One can get caught and lost in the downward spiral of this strong and deep contraction, which if we see it really clearly, we find that it's a fixation on the idea of a separate, solid me and you. This fixation can often be a strong component in the midst of an unrecognized, unhealthy grief. When we feel pity in ourself for ourself, or when we're caught in the self-obsession of an unhealthy grief, in those moments we're not experiencing any true caring or kindness or compassion for ourselves, but rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling, that heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves, that poor me with a capital M-E feeling. And in this place, there's not much, if any, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves. So again, within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental mindful awareness, can we practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body and mind, letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification, myself as a pitiable, pitiful person, but rather the possibility of here's pity, here's grief, 
This is what's arising. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am, but it's come up. How is it? Mindfulness and compassion are necessary companions on this path to awakening and in the seeming magic that can happen when they work together. We might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what may feel like the most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in an unexpected moment, in a most unexpected way. I'd like to share a piece from my uh, diary that comes up from my participation in the first, uh, what was called, or what is called, a bearing witness retreat that Roshi Bernie Glassman held in Poland uh, in November of 1996 at the Auschwitz concentration camp. And I was, uh, I attended that retreat. It's well into the, it was during a time that I was teaching in Poland. It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take a train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman Roshi has organized the first bearing witness retreat. As we slowly walk through the camp on this first harsh gray November morning, I'm aware of the two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears from the eyes of many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the prisoners, the shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes, and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp razor edginess and tension moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let in fully than the immense sadness, as it's, far less, it's a far less familiar feeling, and thus less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to whatever this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable to me, but I'm not so easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension the raw discordance and alienation, until one afternoon I find myself alone on my knees in front of an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes, and Om Mani Padme Hum, it's the Tibetan mantra of compassion, quite spontaneously repeats out loud from my heart for the Nazis. A deep intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of disconnection, separation from life, separation from oneself, 
the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in, living with, in order to murder one, let alone millions, is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion, not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that just as each of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of compassion, every one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, separation from ourself, and the unmitigated alienation and utter insanity, untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with his experience as I, me, mine, and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others, as happened to such an extreme degree in Auschwitz. Since the days at Auschwitz, I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all of the opportunities and blessings that have have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices, which are the best medicine for all wounds. A couple of years after I returned from Poland, Uh, This story was put into a newsletter that the Taos Meditation Group sent out. And I'd like to share a response that I received from an Israeli Dhamma student who has also been uh, very involved with Israeli-Palestinian peace work. I was deeply touched reading your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. From my early childhood, I saw the horror and the pain of the faces of the people who survived and were parents or grandparents of friends of mine. They and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I'm reading it in her, English is in her first language. I felt as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. I remember I once took a night train from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and a German policeman came and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins froze. After a while I fell asleep and again again and had a dream. In my dream, the train had to stop, and the policeman asked everybody to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German soil. Finally, I took some books that were in my bag and put them on the ground and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up. I think only then I realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I am too frightened to even think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect to what you experienced. I felt it very important for me to be able to make such a transition. A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both his hands and a flag in the book of Koran explained that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. 
life, his life, his, others, any life, has no meaning for him. I began to cry. Then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion that you were expressing. I could connect to this now. And some words from Vimala Thakkar, who I had mentioned a few Dharma talks ago, the Indian spiritual master who was a longtime student of Krishnamurti's. She's been described as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. And these are her words. We are at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer. That what is me is quite separate from the not me. That division among people and nations are necessary, and yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflicts begin with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering, what does this powerful moment of truth do to us? Do we retreat into the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms, or are we awakened at the core of our being? And so these two wings of awakening with which we fly free, the wing of wisdom that comes about via our experiential insight into the impermanent, the unsatisfactory, and particularly the not-self nature of all conditioned things. And the other wing, the being the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, <clears throat> And our way of being that ins- our way of being in the world <clears throat> that ensues from this. This swing of awakening arising primarily out of a clear and deep seeing and knowing of dukkha, its root cause and the way of its end. In reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers all the way back to the Buddha. This heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family. If it wasn't for the wing of great compassion, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I always find it so interesting and helpful and inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself his speaking about his own humanness, which he even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. In one of his discourses the, from the Majjhima Nikaya Sutta 26, we find him with a small group of bhikkhus sharing with them what his thoughts were soon after his awakening. And this is the Buddha, Buddha's words. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. 
But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And the Buddha goes on to say, Considering thus my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. He then tells his monks that soon after this, a certain Brahma came to him and pleaded. And the Brahma said, The world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata, accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. Let the Sublime One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And then the Buddha goes on talking to his monks and says, Then I listened to the Brahma's pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good and bad qualities. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach. And then I replied to the Brahma, Out of compassion for beings, open to them are the doors of the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahman, I did not speak the Dhamma, subtle and sublime. So this swing of unconditional compassion, profound, subtle, and itself obviously also not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna is so honestly and clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. It's the wing that connects the absolute understanding of non-self to the relative nature of our humanness. One way to look at this uh, that I think might be helpful in understanding it is this. To know non-self means to know directly and clearly that life is only in the immediate presence of just what is being experienced. To know compassion means that we fully attend to what arises in experience because it's all we know and can ever know, ever truly know. I'd like to close the talk this evening with some words from... uh, a student of mine that I um, mentioned in an earlier Dhamma talk, Roy, who uh, died of AIDS-related complications. You may remember my words about him. And this is from a book that he was writing that he never finished. My first eight-day Vipassana retreat, 
Trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back and makes my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg grows numb. On the day I make the two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. <laughs> he never lost a sense of humor, this man. The retreat schedule looks daunting. From 5.45 a.m. to 10 p.m., nine sits alternate with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are delicious, deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects, feasting, feasting on the nectar of hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day and am reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate when you can. Rest when you need to. By our first sit, all my bodily pain is gone. He was a Amazing student. <laughs> All my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second full day, I marvel that I am attending all of the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find some time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series I learned many years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddha's compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we're asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, questions about uh, during Dhamma talks increase in intensity. Are metta and karuna better than vipassana? In practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, where do they come from? Where do they go? We're creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all the retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how Vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me, bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And Vipassana practice is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. The last full day of the retreat, during walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center, my heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life. The suffering and the beauty, all of it being held, but not held onto. And let's just... Sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.